morning, an exclusive conversation with eight of Bill Cosby's accusers. Seven of them first spoke out to NBC News in an unprecedented Dateline interview nearly six years ago. Now they're sharing their reaction to Cosby's release, their reflections on the last six years, and their hopes for the future. NBC's senior national correspondent Kate Snow has been on the story from the very beginning. She joins us once again this morning. Kate, good morning. Good morning, Craig and Chanel. They knew that Bill Cosby was appealing his conviction. Some of them even listened to the arguments before the Pennsylvania Supreme Court months ago. And they say they had a bad feeling. But for most of these women, the decision to release Cosby came as a total shock. They are eight of the more than 60 who have accused Bill Cosby. And with Cosby a free man, they say their support for each other and the work they can do together is more important than ever. When they heard Bill Cosby would walk free, there was anger and more. Thickened. Disgusted. Victoria, who are you most angry at? I'm angry at the legal system. We put our necks on the line and then the legal system yanked the rug out from under us. I'm feeling frustrated and upset because I feel like a bully has been let go. I'm concerned for the victims of sexual assault that they will have that attitude of, why bother? Why bother telling my story? I was drugged and raped. Six years ago, all but one of these women joined a group of more than 20 to share their stories about Bill Cosby. How many of you believe you were drugged by Bill Cosby? How many of you believe Bill Cosby raped you? Their accusations ranging from harassment to groping to sexual assault and rape. Many of the stories were strikingly similar. Bill Cosby and his lawyers deny any of it ever happened. We come on the air with breaking news. Bill Cosby has been released from prison. Now the Pennsylvania Supreme Court decision overturning Cosby's 2018 indecent assault conviction brings the women back together. There's a fire inside of me that has just made me want to go out and make change even more than I did in 2015. He was not proclaimed innocent. I think those of us in, this, in our sisterhood need to hold on to that. The point the Supreme Court made over and over was that this was a due process issue, that Bill Cosby was essentially promised by a prosecutor that he would never be prosecuted, and then he was, and that violated his rights. And what is the yeah, evidence? Still, that, what is the evidence of that promise? Show the proof. Bill Cosby's representative called the court's decision a victory for Black America. <laughs> this is not about race. It's about rape. The only place that race plays into this is the fact that Bill Cosby was disproportionately targeting Black women. Two of these women testified in support of Andrea Constant. Lisa Lott, do you regret that? Absolutely not. I would go back and do it again. This man has spent two years and nine months in jail. This man has lost his entire reputation. He's lost every bit of credibility that he's ever had. It's worth the public knowing the magnitude of character assassination, of blaming and shaming, of silencing. And yet we've still found the strength to transform our tragedy into political power. Since speaking out, many of Cosby's accusers have fought to change the statute of limitations on sexual assault and succeeded in several states. This may be the kickstart that we need for more states to get involved. Their survivor sisterhood, they say, the sweetest thing to come out of their trauma. I am ready and raring to go. And 
will do anything and speak my truth to anyone that needs it. I'm very, very proud to know all of We have opened the floodgates for so many people who had previously never felt safe in speaking out. Predators are being put on notice. Barbara Bowman told me that she would tell anyone out there who's still carrying a story to find someone who will listen. Some of them will be at a vigil this Saturday evening in Philadelphia. There's also an event in Chicago, Craig. So, Kate, I mean, Cosby, out of prison now, does he face other legal issues at all? Yeah, he does, actually, Craig. There's a civil suit against Cosby in Los Angeles that's moving forward right now. An attorney for that accuser, Gloria Allred, said Wednesday that they'll be asking the court to allow a second deposition of Bill Cosby. In that case, the next hearing for that is mid-August, guys. Our senior national correspondent, Kate Snowforce, this morning. Kate, thank you. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. And I'm continuing my conversation with award-winning investigative journalist Nikki Weissensee-Egan. As I said in part one, Nikki covered this case right from the start when no one else would. She has an encyclopedic knowledge of the case and has always reported on it in a measured and compelling way, despite many trying to intimidate her, threaten her, push back on her, and tell her she's wrong. On that note, I want to do something slightly different before we dive back in. I want you to hear this fascinating and astounding interview with Dan Abrams from 2005. Now I'm going to play it in full so that you hear it firsthand. It's a longer clip than normal, but I think it's really important you hear it all. So you might recall we talked about Tamara Green in the last episode. Well, we talk about her again in part two, and this interview relates to when she came forward. Now, Nikki interviewed her and published her story, and this interview is in response to that. And a heads up, this is your active listening and analysis skills test. I want you to pay close attention to what Nikki says. What Bruce Castor the DA at the time says, as well as how Nikki is spoken to. Also, part of the interview are Michael Caine, a former prosecutor, and defence lawyer Karen Russell, who was a friend of Bill Cosby. Pay close attention to what they say too. OK, that having been said, take a listen to this. Hi everyone, first on the docket tonight, a second woman comes forward claiming Bill Cosby sexually assaulted her. But she says it happened 30 years ago, and she never reported it to authorities. Tamara Green told her story to the Philadelphia Daily News. She says she wants to bolster the credibility of the woman who went to police last month to report Cosby abused her a year ago at his Philadelphia home. Like the current accuser, she says she felt sick, that Cosby gave her a drug that made her woozy, and that he tried to molest her. Cosby's attorneys adamantly deny the latest accusation. They told us, quote, As we informed the Daily News before they printed today's story, Ms. Green's allegations are absolutely false. Mr. Cosby does not know the name Tamara Green or Tamara Lucier, and the incident she describes did not happen. Not a single detail in the article has been corroborated by anyone. The fact that she may have repeated this story to others is not corroboration. It is irresponsible of the Daily News to publish an uncorroborated story of an incident that is alleged to have happened 30 years ago. Also, as we told you last week, it's been reported that the current accuser 
may have taped phone conversations she had with Cosby after going to the police. And today, Celebrity Justice has a story claiming that the accuser's mother may have tried to extort money from Cosby in exchange for keeping the alleged incident a secret. They say at least one of those conversations also may have been taped. My take. This new allegation, even if credible, is not going to make or break the decision as to whether Cosby is charged. I believe there was no way these prosecutors were going to charge Cosby before this week, but this new allegation, coupled with the possible existence of audio tapes, could make prosecutors think twice. Joining me now is Philadelphia Daily News reporter Nicole Weissensegan, who interviewed uh, the second woman to come forward and accuse Bill Cosby. Um, thanks very much uh, for coming on the program. Appreciate it. Thanks um, for having me on. So give me, how did you, how did this woman, this woman just called you out of the blue? Well, I'm not going to get into how, like, she came to me or I came to her, but suffice it to say that I did an extensive interview with her about her allegations. Um, and why are you so, conv I mean, the, the article basically seems to be vouching for her in a way, saying that, the, you know, your investigation determined that it was at least credible. Why? No, what my article said is I reported that she reported this to law enforcement and to the attorneys hired by the Canadian woman, and I was given her an avenue to tell her story. She wanted to tell it publicly, and that's all it said. Um, the, as you heard, the, the Cosby team uh, is basically, you know, they seem to be chastising the paper for going forward with the story even after uh, they denied it. What do you make of that? Typical um, strong-handed tactics by them. They want to try to clamp down on anything that might possibly put the people that the person that they work for in a bad light. I mean, there was a lot of intimidation going on, frankly. You believe her? I believe her. I wouldn't have reported her story if I didn't believe her. Um, so it is fair to say then that you know maybe vouching is the wrong word, but that that you believe this story credible enough to go forward with it. Right. I don't think. Um, I think you can draw that conclusion. I would not have reported this story if I didn't find her credible. Let me read a quote from the, uh, the article. I realize uh, this is the, uh, the woman that him doing it to me 30 years ago doesn't prove he did it to this girl today. But when I heard the circumstances, I felt compelled to call up and say he did the exact same thing to me. Um, when we say exact same thing, we're talking about uh, allegedly the same sort of circumstances, right? Someone saying they're sick and then it going from there. Exactly. Explain that to us. Well, what is the allegation? What she said happened is she was working for Cosby. He told her he was trying to start up a club. This was back in the early 70s. And she called him up one day and she said, I feel sick. And he said, well, I'm going home. And he said, why don't you come over to Figaro? It was a restaurant in Los Angeles that he owned. And which, by the way, um, the, the Cosby people did confirm that he had an ownership in this restaurant long ago. And she went over there and she, he said, would you like some contact? Like, and he came and she said, yes. And then he came back from the back of the restaurant and office back there and gave her two red and gray capsules. And what she said happened is within 20 minutes, she's feeling really giddy and high, and 10 minutes later, she's practically face down in her salad. And she said that he said to her, um, would you like me to take you home? And she said yes, because she couldn't drive. So he drove her home in his car, followed her into her apartment, and she said that he started kissing her, pulling her clothes off and everything, and she was trying to fight him off, and she was yelling and screaming, and that he persisted, and that she finally picked up a lamp and was going to throw it through a window, and at that point is when he backed off, because she just wanted to draw attention somehow to what was going on. And before he left her apartment, though, she said he put two $100 bills on her end table, and she said that infuriated her, so she got dressed and um, ran out of her apartment, and because she's still woozy from the drugs, she fell off her own porch and got pretty cut up and banged up. And she says the reason that she didn't ultimately report it is because Bill Cosby, you say, went to uh, 
visit her brother, who was uh, ill at the time. All right, let me... He was dying at the time in yeah. a local hospital. All right, let me bring in, uh, joining me now, former Pennsylvania prosecutor Michael Kane and defense attorney Karen Russell, who also considers herself a friend of, uh, of Bill Cosby's. Um, uh, Mike Kane, let me play this sound of the DA. This is from January the 26th. And I have to tell you, this is a district attorney who sure does not sound like he's going to file any charges against Bill Cosby. Let's listen. I think that the factors such as failing to disclose in a timely manner um, and contacts with the alleged perpetrator after the event are factors that weigh um, in favor of Mr. Cosby in this case. Mike Kane, that doesn't sound like a prosecutor who is uh, going to file charges. Anything you've heard sound like might change his mind? Uh, no, it sounds like he was pretty clear in his mind he wasn't going to file charges. I mean. The, the, uh, the standard comment is no comment, and just by going on and making any kind of statements like that, it was pretty clear to me when I heard that that he was disinclined to do it. Of course, this puts him under tremendous pressure now. Um, there's uh, legal pressure as well as, as public uh, pressure, I'm sure, to rethink that. But, you know, to tell you the truth, one of the things he's going to have to consider is, is that is this ever going to see a courtroom, this other allegation? And Pennsylvania law is pretty clear that something that happened 30 years ago uh, even if it's a uh, very similar type of behavior uh, is too remote, I would be really, really surprised to see a Pennsylvania court allow that into evidence. How much does that weigh into your thinking if you're the prosecutor and you're deciding whether to file charges and you hear about this other case, you know, a woman's a lawyer, uh, let's say you think she seems credible, but as you point out 30 years ago, how much does that weigh on your decision? Well, you know, the first question every prosecutor asks himself is, do I believe the victim? Uh, the alleged victim, and, and if he has any kind of question about that, uh, this could sway that, that aspect of it. But then the second question is, is that what, what's going to happen uh, in court? Is this something that's going to be uh, carry the day with the jury? And, and uh, you know, I just don't see that this is going to really, in the, in the end, make much difference in his decision whether to bring charges or not. So you still expect that he will not? I, I, I expect he will not. You know, when you're dealing with any kind of a uh, a case like this where there's no corroboration, it's a pure he said, she said, it's the toughest choice a prosecutor ever has to make. And when it's somebody who is a celebrity, uh, I think it even weighs uh, heavier on their mind because you turn celebrity into infamy just by signing that indictment. And that's not something that any prosecutor takes lightly. Karen, what do you make of the new, uh, the new allegation? Well, I agree with the prosecutor. I think, you know, it's remote in time. I don't think it's admissible. I don't think it would ever get in front of a jury. Um, it's prejudicial. And it's not like it was a crime. Um, it's just uh, an allegation. Um, let me play another piece of sound. This is, again, from the DA, January the 26th. The failure of a complainant to bring allegations of criminality to the attention of law enforcement in a timely fashion does tend to make to suggest that the complainant did not think the conduct was as offensive as a person who immediately reports it. Again, Karen, do you think that, that this new allegation as reported um, by the Philadelphia Daily News might change the prosecutor's mind? Um, I would hope not. I mean, he may feel some public pressure because of this story, um, but I think that he clearly articulated this lady didn't come forward in a timely manner, plus the accuser's mother had a conversation with him that sort of smells like a shakedown. So I think the, the, the combination of those two elements um, would deter him from, from bringing charges. 
This is another uh, quote um, from Nicole's article that we were just talking about in the Philadelphia Daily you News. Don't let me respond to this? Uh, I heard his lawyer said her claims were preposterous, and basically I thought, my eye, this is the woman, he did exactly the same thing to me. It set my teeth on edge and made my hair stand up. Then I heard a press release from the district attorney saying he thought the case was weak, and why did she wait so long to come forward? I worked in a DA's office, and that's DA speak for we're not filing charges. I felt compelled to come forward after I heard that. Nicole, did you want back in? Yes, I did. I mean, I think that these uh, these experts you're quoting are taking the celebrity justice report as has being true, and it's unsubstantiated. And let me also point out that don't you think that if this woman was trying to extort Bill Cosby, that Bill Cosby would have gone to authorities and have her arrested for extortion? He had that done for Autumn Jackson. What to make of that, Karen? Well, we don't know where he is in the process. I mean, I frankly, I was surprised that there wasn't sort of the O'Reilly response, which, you know, sort of the countersuit with extortion. So, you know what? I haven't talked to Bill, Bill Cosby's legal team, so I don't know what the process is. And maybe he was just hoping this would go away the way it should. And let me also point out that that's Cosby's people leaking that to celebrity justice. So you have no yeah. confirmation on that. Yeah, but people would say, might say the same thing about your story. Exactly. Yeah. No, I have a woman on the record who used her name, who agreed right. to come forward publicly and say this happened to her. And, and, she, and, no one and I checked her out as thoroughly as you can check someone out. And you guys are talking like, I've talked to other prosecutors. And let me tell you that prior bad acts, even ones 30 years ago, can be admissible in a Pennsylvania yeah, court. It, it, it's up to the judge, but right. it is possible. It is possible, but I assure it's you, possible, Mike, but it, it's I, I assure you, Mike Kane has argued a lot of cases in the state of Pennsylvania, and uh, it's a man with no axe to grind, and he's just saying it's going to be real tough. I'm telling you that I talked to prosecutors who said right. they have succeeded in allowing testimony that old well, in. You know, they're, they're I'm really glad that you're now a legal expert. I'm not my, a legal I mean, you know, expert. But, I'm yeah. just saying okay. that you talk to yeah. people who right. who just have uh, no uh, knowledge. Uh, of one incident wait, wait, wait. thirty years ago wait, does wait, not constitute habit. Michael Kane has a lot of knowledge about Pennsylvania law. All right. I mean, I'm I'm totally look. You deserve a lot of credit for this article. We'll see if it's credible. But you're not going to get away with saying Michael Caine doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm not, right? not saying that. Program. I'm saying that in the interviewed in the story were experts who have recently tried cases in Pennsylvania, sex <laughs> okay. crimes cases, and have gotten that. Admitted. Mike, go ahead. Just final word on this. I, I got to wrap say, up. I, The only case I, I found one case where there was a 17-year difference between the date uh, of the, the alleged occurrence and a prior occurrence, but it involved a guy who was charged with killing his wife, and they showed a whole pattern that lasted those 17 years. Uh, of, of continual abuse. That's a whole different story. First of all, there's nothing to even suggest that this woman who, who was interviewed claims that, that she was given what he purported to be uh, contact. There's nothing to even suggest it wasn't contact. They're trying to make something uh, into that he slipped her a Mickey, and there was no evidence of that to begin with. So to go back 17 years of something that, that uh, is not as similar as it sounds, I just, there's no way a Pennsylvania court, it is in the discretion of the judge, but there's no way I see any right. judge we doing We shall this. see Michael Caine and Karen Russell. They're regulars. So they know how this goes. Nicole, thanks a lot for playing with us. I know we get a little tough sometimes in the show, but it seems like you're one of these people who can certainly take it. Yeah, I can that, <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thanks. What did you make of that? A couple of standout, hair-raising and hugely problematic points from me, and I will keep it brief. So firstly, the DA at the time, Bruce Castor, said factors such as failing to disclose in a timely manner and contact with the perpetrator after the event are factors that weighed in favour of Bill Cosby. Now, for me, both of those points are inaccurate. Many victims report much later and also stay in contact with their abuser, particularly if there's fear or any form of coercion or power and control. 
Also, Michael Caine said that a prosecutor would weigh up whether they believe the victim first off before they make their decision. Well, one of the critical issues was that Bruce Castor didn't speak with the victims before making his decision, and you'll hear more about that from Nikki. Referring to Tamara's sexual assault, Karen weighs in, saying that it was remote in time, it would never get in front of a jury, it was prejudicial, and it's not like it was a crime, it's just an allegation. This is absolutely outrageous and egregious. It is a crime. Drugging someone and touching them sexually is a sexual assault. Then you heard another clip of the former DA, Bruce Custer. This time he said that a person who doesn't immediately report criminality to the police, the time delay, well that means that they don't see it as seriously as someone who does report immediately to the police. This is factually inaccurate and there's no evidence to suggest this. In fact, with sexual victimisation and domestic abuse and stalking victims, in my experience as an expert, there's often delayed reporting for many, many reasons. Oftentimes, the main reason is fear. Fear of the repercussions and fear of not being believed. Now, for me, this just shows how out of touch they are and why it's so important for experts to be involved in cases, particularly when it's women who are the victims and men who are the perpetrators, because men in the system make many faulty assumptions about why victims do not report. For me in this interview, Nikki was unflappable throughout, don't you think? She remained measured, calm, confident and clear. She never overstepped, she just reported the facts. It's also curious and angry-making how they responded to Nikki, who was just putting forward the factual information that it would be up to a judge to decide whether he or she would hear about other prior bad acts. And she was shut down. But just to reiterate, she was right, because that's exactly what happened. And a prosecutor did decide to prosecute, and a judge did decide to hear prior bad act witnesses. So there's that. I'm glad I got that off my chest because when I listened to that interview, it absolutely astounded me and fascinated me because everything that she said was right. That's what then happened. Okay, so where we left off in part one, we talked about the fact that there are a number of civil suits and we're talking here specifically about the civil suit brought by Judy Huff, who alleged Bill Cosby sexually assaulted her at the Playboy Mansion when she was 16. Well, after 10 days of testimony and on the fourth day of deliberation, the jury announced that it was siding with Judy Huff and awarded her half a million dollars in damages. This verdict is in direct conflict with Cosby's narrative that his release is an exoneration. It's certainly not that, and you'll hear more about it in this episode. Also, here's the trigger warning. Listener discretion is advised. This case and our discussion may be triggering and or angry making. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? 
find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. I hope that there will be more lawsuits. Um, going down the civil route, it seems that that seems to be the only way that some of the women have been able to get any form of accountability with Bill Cosby. And I think that civil suit with Judy was, was important. That was in Santa Monica, wasn't it? And you wrote a piece on that in your Substack that people can read if, if they want to. Uh, yes, I did. Yeah, that's where I, I started that because I felt like since I put my opinion out there about the case when I wrote the book and when it came out in 2019, I didn't feel like I could cover it as a news story anymore, but I have been writing op-eds when asked or whatever. So that's why I also started the Substack just to write about things I feel like writing about and especially the Cosby case as things pop up. Um, it just gives me a forum to do that because I, I still care really deeply about this case, you know, and, and what happened last year with him being released is is exactly why I have never strayed from this. And even in 2014, I wrote about this in the book, like when I all of a sudden the rest of the media started jumping into the story, I was just, I didn't trust them. I didn't trust them, the reporting. I didn't trust them to not back off the story. And in fact, the Associated Press did. They held on to that interview. You can watch it online, an interview with Bill Cosby. They did where he said, you're not going to use any of that, are you? And you're going to now, I'll call so-and-so in LA. And they didn't release it for two weeks. And then, of course, they sort of redeemed themselves because the Associated Press were the ones who filed, you know, in court to get portions of Cosby's deposition unsealed from the Andrea's 2005 lawsuit, which, of course, led to the revelations where he admitted to giving quaaludes to women. But even when I was writing my book, I was looking back at the stories that they were writing about the case in 2005, and they were all geared heavily toward Cosby. Like, they would start with Cosby's defense of these allegations. Or, you know, I had notes I wrote about Tamara Green when when Cosby's spokesperson called to give me negative information about Tamara Green when I was working on that story. And he's like, Mary Claire Dale at the AP has this information too. And I looked back and saw her story. And yeah, it was, it was very, it was led with, if I'm not mistaken, it led with these bar, she'd had a bar complaint filed against her that has said since been resolved because Tamara was an attorney. So that's what they did. And they, I, like I said, and I wrote about this recently, I know that they they were the ones handing out information, negative information about tomorrow because I was getting it too. <laughs> you yeah. should, I guys, I still had the printouts of the emails. You should contact this lawyer. And I talked about it with Greta Van Susteren on her show and this lawyer. And Greta actually reached one of the attorneys and said in my interview, she's like, I actually called one of those attorneys, spent quite a while talking to him. And both he basically just said he found her annoying. <laughs> and they were getting copies of the complaint and emailing it to reporter. I mean, it was just, you know, it was utter insanity. So, but that's the power that people like him have over the media even. And if it hadn't been for social media in 2014, this scandal would have died again because the mainstream media wasn't really covering it at first. It was just, you know, and also news organizations that were strictly online had had burst onto the scene in the last 10 years too. There was Gawker, there was BuzzFeed. They could have cared less about Cosby and his legacy and they weren't backing off the story, but it was truly social media that made the difference because there was no social media in 2005. Um, Facebook was just for college students. There was no Twitter, no Snapchat, no Instagram, no anything. But in 2014, I mean, that's where this case really went crazy. And the, and the video of Hannibal Burris 
the comedian Colin Cosby, a rapist, went viral. It, uh, it was all on Twitter. And Cosby could control the media, but he couldn't control social media. And in fact, he tried his team put together like a meme contest, asking people to do a meme of Cosby. And they started doing memes of him drugging and raping women. And so like by the end of the day, they had just stopped the meme contest because they tried to get into that battle and they tried to control it. And it backfired spectacularly on them. Yeah, that's an important point, actually. Social media really played a role in a positive way of exposing Cosby. Let's not forget here as well, Nikki, and you know, I've got a copy of your book next to me. And again, I highly recommend all my listeners do read it, um, Chasing Cosby, the fact that you wrote it and documented it. And it's so well sourced. I mentioned that before, you know, in the back. And obviously you did that as part of the legacy. And this is even more important present day, I would say, that there is a, an audit of what went on. But in his own words, he admitted to drug raping women in his own words, in a deposition. And I remember Obama weighed in as well and said, well, that's called rape. That constitutes rape. And so in his own words... He didn't admit to raping. He admitted to giving drugs to women he wanted to have sex with. And then he amended it to say woman. And it was Therese he was referring to, Jane Doe number 10. But that's where Obama said, right, but that's rape, you know, because you're knocking them unconscious and, you know, they can't consent. They can't consent. And that's, yes, you're, you're right to say that. His words, but I put them in the terms of what I as an expert would call that. If you give someone a drug and they don't know what that drug is and it incapacitates them and then you sexually assault them, that is a sexual assault. It's not consensual. Okay, take a listen to this. It's Bill Cosby's own words that provide the strongest evidence so far for more than two dozen women, alleging the 77-year-old comedian drugged and raped them. In it, Cosby admitted to having seven prescriptions for quaaludes. He was asked, when you got the quaaludes, was it in your mind that you were going to use the quaaludes for young women that you wanted to have sex with? Cosby responded, yes. That admission thrilling to Victoria Valentino, who says Cosby drugged her in 1970. I was absolutely elated. I, I couldn't stop just screaming, you know. I was just going, oh, my God, oh, my God. I mean, because obviously we already knew. So uh, this was just validation and vindication. The deposition also reveals that when lawyers pressed Cosby, asking, did you ever give any of those young women the quaaludes without their knowledge, Cosby's attorney stepped in, telling him not to answer the question. He is also asked about another woman. Quote, she meets me backstage. I give her quaaludes. We then have sex. End quote. Cosby also says, I can't judge at this time what she knows about herself for 19 years, a passive personality. The questioning doesn't specify if she took the pills knowing what they were. Asked if the young lady was starstruck, Cosby responds, you will have to ask her. And I can't remember, there was another line that he said that somewhere between permission and... And rejection. And rejection. It lies somewhere between permission and rejection. I mean, what a a thing to say that leads me to believe he knew fully well what he was doing. He may reshape it in his own head that these were consensual acts and... It sounds to me that that's what's gone on. It's been reclaimed as his own narrative. But what multiple women have said, not just one, is the same story over and over again. 
and the comedian calls it out for what it is. But of course, we are present day in a very different situation. So let, let's talk about what happened in terms of Bill Cosby walking free from prison and the fact, well, you give your take first of all. What, what went on and how did we get to this place, Nikki? Yeah, I don't understand. I, what I will say, and I, I wrote many pieces about this, is that whatever that Pennsylvania Supreme Court decision was that freed Bill Cosby, it was not based on the law. Because Bill Cosby, just what the Supreme Court agreed to hear the case on two issues, whether or not the so-called 404B witnesses, which is the five other women who testified at Cosby's second trial that he had drugged and sexually assaulted them, should have been allowed to testify because it's not clear in Pennsylvania uh, how many of those witnesses are too many and how far back in time you're allowed to go. And, you know, honestly, I remember I remember being at pretrial hearings where the judge was struggling with this because the prosecution wanted 19 women to testify at the second trial. And the judge ended up allowing five, but only of the ones, no one before 1982. And he allowed the prosecution to pick which five they wanted to have testify. The other issue was whether this press release that Bruce Castor put out in 2005 was an immunity agreement. Because when this case bubbled up again in 2014, Bruce Castor was doing interviews and he was saying, oh, I wanted to arrest Cosby back then, but I couldn't, blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden, when the woman who, by the way, who was his first assistant, Risa Furman, was the DA who reopened this case in July of 2015. And if there had been an immunity agreement that she was aware of and Castor later claimed she was, don't you, you think she would have reopened the case if there was any validity to what Castor was saying? So after it got out in the press that Risa had reopened the case, Castor starts writing emails and doing interviews saying, oh, I, I have a written declaration in 2005 saying, telling Cosby we would never prosecute him. And he emails her and she's like, Risa, don't you remember? And Risa's like, Bruce, I have no idea what you're talking about. And he says, this press release I put out, that's it. And she said, Bruce, you've never said that to me before. And the judge, there was a hearing about it after Cosby was arrested. It cast her testified for seven hours. And the judge is like, an immunity agreements have to be signed off on by a judge. And that's when Castor went, well, I, as the sovereign of Montgomery County, I had the power to do this. As the sovereign, I didn't need to have approval. And the judge finally just gave up on questioning him because he just wasn't answering the question. And he also claimed on the stand that Risa knew about it and that Andrea's attorneys knew about it. And Andrea's attorneys got on the stand and said, no, we never knew anything about this. We didn't even know that Cosby was going to be arrested. They found out from the media when the media showed up on their doorstep. Castor didn't even have the dig, you know, the the wherewithal to let them know that Cosby wasn't going to be charged for this arrest. I um, mean, to let them know that Cosby wasn't going to be charged. They found out from the media. So there was just so much that stank to high heaven on this. And um, but the Supreme Court agreed to hear arguments on that. And I remember watching they were on YouTube because it was during the pandemic in December 2020. So I watched them and I remember when the justices were really grilling the prosecution, they were like very hostile to them. And at one point, the chief justice asked the prosecutor a question and then turned off his camera and walked away for 10 minutes while she was answering it. And then he came back and sat down like nothing had happened. So I really didn't think the appeal was going to go. I thought the appeal was going to go Cosby's way, but I thought it would be on the issue of the 404B witnesses, which frankly is an issue that needs to be clarified a little better. Right now, it's just that the probative value has to outweigh the prejudicial value because it does violate uh, suspects' rights in some way. I mean, it's very, very prejudicial. It can be very prejudicial information. So the probative value has to outweigh the prejudicial. But 
what the Supreme Court said. And, and so even if they throw out this evidence, though, the remedy is not a get out of jail free card and you can never be tried again, because that was the other shocking part of this decision they decided. And really, it's like Bruce Castor wrote the decision himself, because every part of it is Bruce Castor's version of events, not the uh, they don't even get the facts of the case right in the decision. And second of all, they said that this this was such an egregious violation of due process rights. He can't be tried a third time. And they ordered his immediate release. I mean, I was barely finished reading the decision when Cosby was out of prison. And, you know, it just doesn't happen that way. I have an inmate I've been corresponding with for 22 years who didn't commit a murder. And he's finally and they've known that for all these years. And now he's finally inching his way toward actual freedom. But, you know, not Bill Cosby. You know, I, I, I always say like the surprising thing was that he was ever charged and arrested and convicted and sent to prison in the first place because that just doesn't happen to Bill Cosby. Um, the not, not surprising thing is he finally was able to use his influence in some way and get this decision because it wasn't based on the law. Hey, lovely. What's your makeup go to? What do you need to face the day? Now, for me, if I apply my eyeliner, my brilliant eye brightener, mascara and red lipstick, I feel ready to face anything. But I know every now and again, I need to zhuzh up my makeup. And my amazing sponsor, Thrive Cosmetics, has a full line of makeup to refresh your everyday look. With clean, skin-loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. Also, Thrive Cosmetics' Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are homeless. Now, if you want to wreck from me, you cannot go wrong with the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. Thrive Cosmetics Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara has a unique formula which creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. And they use nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger and healthier looking lashes over time. Plus, it's super easy to remove and slides right off with warm water and doesn't leave smudges. So treat yourself or someone you love and help women thrive together. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crimeanalyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crimeanalyst for 10% off your first order. And there was another weird thing that happened, which is there's this reporter for this group. It's a crazy website called YC News that basically seemed to exist to trash Andrea Constand. And the reporter on that, by the way, who got arrested and, and, and convicted of fraud for something else he wrote about, somehow knew Andrew Wyatt. There's a video clip you can see where Andrew Wyatt, Cosby spokesman on the day's release, says, Nick called me a year, a week ago and said, Nick's the reporter at YC News. You've got to get to Philly because Cosby's going to be released in, next week. Take a listen to this clip, which Nikki just referenced. I want you to hear it for yourselves because it's quite extraordinary. Bear in mind the date and the timing. This video was taken the day Cosby was released on June the 30th, 2021. Interestingly, I don't see Cosby with a cane or wearing dark glasses. Also, the clip is sourced to Andrew Wyatt, Cosby's spokesman, and the car is being driven by Andrew Wyatt. OK, take a listen to this. Thank you. And thank everyone up there. No problem. 
see you, young lady. Talk to me about the, what you heard on the news. Nick called me. Nick called me last week and said that to get you, that you were going to get out this week. I said, Nick, that's not true. He said, Andrew, get to Pennsylvania. I got here last night. So how you feel, Mr. C? Well, it's starting to hit. Mm -hmm. I was in the bed. Mm -hmm. In the car. In the car. And they opened the, the door because it's one o'clock. Mm -hmm. And about four or five guys yelling, Bill, get up. You're going home. And they put the shoes, my shower shoes, on the wrong foot. And I said, wait, no, 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 you go, you don't understand, you're free. I said, what is it, Juneteenth? <laughs> but man, when I left, murderers, rapists, bank robbers, wife beaters, all. Now, how did this reporter know that? Wow. Especially, and I've tried to find out who's behind that website, and they've got like a an LLC, and nobody's names are on it. So I've always suspected it was someone tied to Cosby that was behind that website. But there's just no way to prove it because it, it actually put out a video during the second trial accusing Andrea's mom of being a racist and Andrea of being a racist and. Just really, really awful, awful stuff that no one, they never seem to be held accountable for. Because injuries, they're not the type to sue people unless they have to. So, yeah, there's just so much about this that doesn't make sense. And that decision is one of them. It's extraordinary. I mean, I would say it's unprecedented, Nikki. I've just never heard or seen anything like this before in my career. A non-prosecution agreement that was never written down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so even the Jeffrey Epstein one, which was, you know, favorable, at least it was signed off on by a judge and it was right. in writing, right? I mean, it was still as outrageous. egregious as it was, yeah, with Acosta, there was a document. I mean, in the Met, I was always taught by the Deputy Assistant Commissioner if it's not written down, it doesn't exist, Laura. It's as simple as that. And particularly in a court of law, it just doesn't exist in your decision making. So for me, it's just extraordinary that it's just on Bruce Castor's say-so. And you did mention it, that the, the judge, Judge O'Neill, did rule that he found that there was no formal agreement. So it was a trial judge decision. And that's really where it should have rested, right, when he questioned Castor. So it is extraordinary. Right. And he ruled that he didn't find Castor credible or Cosby's one attorney who testified credible, which basically meant he believed Andrea's attorneys. And that's the thing. Like, of course, at this level are not supposed to rule on credibility because they are not watching the witnesses testify. They don't have access right. to any of it. But that's what they basically did. They overstepped. They, they overstep what they were supposed to do, what they are allowed to do. And the DA's office did try to appeal it to the U.S. Supreme Court, but the Supreme Court what doesn't hear 99% of the cases that come its way, and they've got to be ones that apply to other ones, so they declined to hear it. And, and so that's where it rests. I mean, they overstepped. They overstepped. They did not have the authority to do what they did, to just ignore what the trial court had ruled on. They don't rule on credibility. That's not their place.
Yeah. I mean, the other baffling thing is, as, as you mentioned, is that Risa Furman said that she didn't know about it. And the two lawyers, Andrea and, and her lawyers, didn't know anything about it. But within the deposition, you know, when Andrea was deposed and with the the civil suit that she won, there was a, a push for Andrea to be disallowed from pursuing any criminal prosecution following that successful suit, right? And mm-hmm. they wouldn't, her lawyers wouldn't agree to that. But it just strikes me as very odd that why would that be needed if this immunity agreement existed? If there were a non-prosecution agreement, why would they try and wrap her up with that she couldn't proceed with a criminal prosecution? And and where they rested it was that she couldn't proactively pursue a criminal investigation. But if prosecutors or anyone approached her, police approached her, then uh, she could make an allegation. I mean, that, that part doesn't make sense to me either. What are your thoughts on it? Right. Yeah. I think I included that in the one piece I wrote on my Substack because that was another point I pointed out. Like if they truly believe they had this immunity agreement, then why did they push to have that added to the, the settlement agreement for Andrea's case that she couldn't initiate an investigation? Why would they need that if there had been this immunity agreement, quote unquote? I mean, there's so much in that. And people say, oh, that's why Cosby was so talkative. And I'm like, no, if you really read through everything he said, he did not admit to doing one illegal thing. All he did was put a positive spin on what he did do. I mean, quaaludes were legal back up until 1984 in the U.S. And he just said he gave them to women he wanted to have sex with. Other people were doing that back then. A lot of people have said that. Yeah, they were disco biscuits. That's what they called them, apparently. So he didn't admit to doing anything illegal. And he created this. He was, and also he refused to answer a lot of questions. He stormed out of the deposition at one point. Um, That's why the deposition was held over two days in September 2005 and then resumed like six months later in March 2006 because Andrew's attorneys had to go to the judge and file a motion to force motion to compel for Cosby to be forced to answer the questions that he was refusing to answer. And so that's why there was this delay, um, the six month delay in between depositions. And in fact, they were about to go to a sixth, a fifth day of depositions and Cosby's attorneys initiated settlement talks, but he didn't admit to doing one illegal thing in there. He he just didn't. And it's interesting because I, you know, reading through it again when I was writing the book and a lot of this is in my end notes, which as you noticed are very voluminous. It's like a book within a book. But I w- there was another teenager who accused him in 2001, I think it was, extra on the Cosby show. I mean, he had his MO. What happened was she went to the police in 2001. The New York Post did a story about it, and so did the National Enquirer. They used her name, again, without her consent, I'm assuming, because with sexual assault victims, you're not supposed to use their names or their photos, but there she was. And the police report was interesting. It, Bill Cosby's name didn't appear anywhere on it. But the address of where it happened was his townhouse on the Upper East Side. And so Cosby's asked about her in the deposition. And he goes on this long tangent like he did talking about Andrea. And it's interesting because he says he talked to her one time after she went to the police. And she asked him, what did you give me? So A, I think obviously he must have given her some drugs. And B, I'm guessing that call was something similar he was offering something similar to what he offered Andrea's mother, which is some kind of scholarship because after that she's, this woman has never spoken publicly, never. And I'm assume she had an NDA, you know, for accepting whatever scholarship she got and which 
but she would be subject to losing should she ever speak about it. So, but that was interesting to me too, because there, even in those stories that were in the New York Post and the National Enquirer, they didn't say anything about her possibly being drugged, just that she sipped some liqueur, but that that's his MO. And he did joke about that in various interviews, didn't he, back in the day, in the, in the 90s, about Spanish fly. And can you say a little bit about that? He did. He had a whole routine about giving women Spanish flies. And if you, if you, you know, Google it, you'll find the videos of it. But what was even more outra- outrageous is after, and I did a story about this, of course, in 2005, after um, Bruce Castor decided not to charge him, Cosby uh, resumed his town halls and he also resumed his comedy shows. And he had a comedy show in New Jersey, I think it was. And I talked to someone who was there and because I was actually, he gave his first interview to the, his one and only print interview about the case to the National Enquirer. And that was another trading up situation because they backed off stories about other women accusing him in order to get this exclusive sit down. Beth Ferrier was one of them in order to get this sit down with Cosby. And I was asking the National Choir spokesman about it. He goes, oh yeah, and I just saw him at a routine and at a show in New Jersey. And he got everybody laughing because he made a joke about drugging women. And I'm like, oh really? You know, I'm like, huh, that sounds like a story. So I got the whole thing and there were, and his people claimed, oh, he, he, a woman was coming up on the stage. He said, oh, you're not worried. I'm going to put something in your drink. Right. And then they said, oh, he wasn't talking about Andrea Constand. He was talking about Sean Upshaw, which is the woman who may or may not have had the baby, Autumn Jackson, with him. I guess she had done an interview with the National Enquirer and said that one time Cosby had given her a funny smelling drink. But that's the only time she said he did that. They were in a consensual relationship. So, yeah, so I did a story about it and went nowhere. And then after this all broke again in 2014 and Cosby had to put his comedy tour on hold and he resumes it in January 2015, one of his first appearances and it's in Canada, he makes a joke about drugging women. Same thing. Oh, you're not worried. I'm going to put that in your drink, right? He makes a joke about drugging women's drinks at his routine. This time though, the media went crazy and it was picked up everywhere. The AP, everybody wrote about it. So yeah, that's part of his MO too, to try to like diffuse it, you know, uh, once he's out in the public again, doing, doing his thing. Yeah. Diffuse it and just normalize it. Like it's just a, a a normal thing. It's kind of like the Epstein hanging pictures of naked girls up the staircase so that when the girls were going up there to his room to massage him, there was already an exposure and a normalization around nudity. So it's it's just this messaging, you know, the drip, drip, drip of the messaging. And, and really he's been the master at it, hasn't he? He's what now, 85? And there are still, his spokesperson, Andrew White, still very active on social media Um, and calling it, he has a phrase, he says that the unjust conviction anniversary, so they did something as as the anniversary, it just strikes me as in such bad and poor taste, the lack of remorse or the lack of any form of empathy for so many women is just staggering to me. But I think that that's been something that's been fairly consistent, hasn't it, across the the 50 years. There's never been any kind of emotion or thought for all these women whose lives have been upended. And there's nothing to say that I would not believe them. There's nothing in what they've said, their accounts, their testimonies, and you've detailed them and spoken to many of the women, as have I, in in person. And it's just, to me, just outrageous we are where we are. I mean, when the decision was made for him to walk free, I was reporting on Britney Spears and I was saying, how is it right that Bill Cosby's free and Britney isn't of this way that men and women are treated 
so very different within our systems. Well, our systems that are created by men to protect men. But for the, I, I still just cannot understand what's in, in it for Castor to pursue this so doggedly to why would he appear on the radio show that you were on to threaten you and say what you were saying was illegal and you could be arrested? Why did he have, why was he so invested in the case? I know. I mean, that there, there's a reason. There's a reason. Some kind of deal must have been cut. I don't know what it was. But the other thing about Cosby, too, showing how emboldened he was by being free, by beating the system once again. And I think we might have talked about this a little before. But I, when I finally caught my breath, I was going through a bunch of clips and so forth uh, a day or two after his release. And I saw an interview done by a CBS reporter. I forget her name. She, she, I sat next to her. Uh, with the trials for a little bit. She's very nice, very beautiful woman. And anyway, so she's she's out in front of his house and she said she got this interview with Cosby. Well, what happened is Andrew Wyatt told her, okay, you can interview Cosby. So he brings her into this house, into the house where he sexually assaulted Andrea Constand, and he takes her up to Cosby's bedroom. And Cosby's lying in bed and she's not allowed to bring cameras. It's a total audio, like a, and I don't even think, if she, I don't know if she taped it. She's allowed to interview him from the doorway while he's lying in bed. And I'm like, I can't even think what that, believe what that woman must have been thinking as she's being, okay, I'm going in now to get this interview. And then he leads her up to Cosby's bedroom. So inappropriate. It, it, was, it is. And A, would they have done that to a male reporter? No. And B, like, why was he in his bedroom? Why was he lying in bed? Why wouldn't you have her sitting at the kitchen counter and talking to her or the kitchen table or really yeah. anywhere but his bedroom? Yeah. Well, it's like Weinstein and his meetings in the bedroom and women are what we're just meant to put up with that. But this is post, isn't it? So it does show about his entitlement and privilege and power and control if, if, that happened. It's disgraceful. So it did, did she because she said it on air? Yeah, and she she revealed it on air. She revealed it on air. You can you can watch the video clip. It's out there because I saw it on Twitter and I, I watched the whole interview because she she reveals that that's what happened, and that she had interview him from the doorway while he was lying in bed and you know and they just kind of treated it pretty matter of factly. No, they did reveal it, but that's what caught my eye too. I'm like, wow. I mean, they did the right thing. They revealed it. But what was she supposed to do? But more, I just thought of it from, wow, he's been really emboldened. You know, he's been behind bars for three years. He hasn't been able to act on any of his urges. And this is the first chance he's getting to trying to kind of play with women's minds again before he does God knows what. I don't know. But it really got me concerned that he was going to do something again. But who yeah, would I mean, come forward now? Why would anyone come forward now? What would be the point? He'll just get, he'll just get freed again. Well, I mean, I always say that there there is a point to women talking and, and sharing their experiences. It can be very cathartic and very healing. But equally, there may still be cases outstanding that could be reinvestigated. And I think that that's important. Uh, you know, I always say no one is above the law. But here we have two examples of men, Castor and Cosby, where it looks like they are above the law. And I just hope that there are professionals out there who look at these cases in the future and look at the facts and look at the evidence and that women still are courageous enough to come forward and have their voice heard. And it is important. Most of these individuals are serial. And that's what the judge said, wasn't it? He determined that Bill Cosby, and he heard all the evidence. So that's another point that is really important, that the judge who heard all the evidence said that he was a sexually violent predator. And that, for me, still stands. So 
it's a very important judgment. And the fact that he did spend some time in prison, I would imagine, well, from hearing from Tamara Green, she was pleased that he served um, just less than three years, wasn't it? And his sentence was three to 10 years. So there was some form of accountability. But yes, to lots of people, it looks like there are two very powerful men, a former prosecutor who could just say, well, there was an agreement and a judge didn't sign, sign it off, which is the law. Take a listen to Kristen Gibbons-Faden, a former prosecutor who prosecuted Cosby. This is what she had to say. Joining us now is Kristen Gibbons-Faden, a special prosecutor in the Cosby trials, who is now an NBC News legal analyst. Good morning to you, Kristen. Before we get into the particulars of the legal ruling, just your gut reaction when you found out that the court was vacating those convictions that you had helped to prosecute and Bill Cosby was free within a matter of hours. Honestly, I was shocked. I was in disbelief. My co uh, Co-prosecutor Stu Ryan had texted me and told me, and I was just in complete disbelief. And particularly since, again, I thought that there was no alleged agreement. We went forward. The common pleas court agreed with us. Uh, the superior court agreed. The superior, or the, excuse me, the Supreme Court disagreed. But um, yeah, I was just in total shock. You know, the court's ruling does not touch on the issue of guilt or innocence. It all turns on whether or not there was a valid agreement not to prosecute and whether your office needed to abide by it. But Cosby was triumphant. On the radio, he said, this is for all who have been wrongfully imprisoned, regardless of race, color or creed. Your reaction? My reaction to that statement, particularly as it is made in conjunction with his other statement, specifically the one that this is justice for black Americans, makes me sick to my stomach and absolutely disgusted. Because throughout the trial and and continuing on now, he is trying to exploit the thirst that black Americans, including myself, um, as as a former prosecutor, have for justice in America for black and brown bodies. The other thing I want to also emphasize is that three of the prior act witnesses, Kelly Johnson, Shalon Lasha, and Lisa Ludlum, were black women, black American women. And so this was not justice for them. And to put himself in the shoes of those wrongfully convicted is just wrong. Yes, the conviction has been overturned, but the merits of the case are still in place. He was found to have sexually assaulted Andrea Constantine. Yes, he does not sit before you as a guilty man. He does, however, still sit before you as a sexual predator. Let me ask you and let me play devil's advocate because the court's ruling turned on this procedural issue, but it it was fundamental. There was a prior prosecutor who said he would not prosecute Bill Cosby criminally. Based on that, Cosby then and goes and testifies in a deposition, gives incriminating evidence, and that is then later used by a different prosecutor who says, I'm not bound by that previous agreement. The court said this was fundamentally unfair. How do you respond to that? Look, Savannah, I 100 percent respect our esteemed bench here in Pennsylvania, particularly all the justices on the Supreme Court bench. But I have to respectfully disagree. And the other thing I want to emphasize is this was a split decision. When we talk about due process rights, I think one of the things we have to go back to is to the actual testimony that was given during the habeas corpus hearing for this particular uh, issue. And during that um, during that hearing, much testimony came out. 
Number one, we're not even certain that an agreement was made. Typically, when these type of non-prosecutorial agreements are made, they are in writing, they are approved by the court, and there aren't any subsequent indicia of, you know, the absence of such an agreement, such as here, where he released a press release where he said, you know, at, it, I, I, I uh, may decline charges now, but I will revisit the decision should the need arise. Well, in addition it, to it, that, it, yeah. I got I got to cut you off there because of the other breaking news we have. But uh, I mean, Kristen, as you said, this was hotly litigated in the lower courts and a split decision uh, now from the from the court of appeals. But um, we appreciate you being here this morning. Thank you very much, Kristen Gibbons Fedden, who is one of the prosecutors in the case and on NBC News legal analyst. Thank you for your time. It's a truly disturbing case, Nikki, for every twist and turn, isn't it? And you've lived it and breathed it with so many incredible Shiro women. And I put you in that category too. What, what else is there that we should know about the case? Of course, with Bill Cosby, there was some poor me syndrome. He had the cane come out and said that he was blind, even though he'd been doing tours, kind of exploiting and manipulating every aspect. Yeah, neither of which you saw once he was released from prison by the way. You didn't right. see cane. You didn't see the black glasses. You know, the other point was, you know, going back to Dr. Ziv, the sexual assault expert who testified at the second trial, she made a couple of points. One, which was that five to 10, and this is in my book too, you know, five to 10%, only five to 10% of sexual assault claims are found to be like not true. And when she and I were talking separately, when I was interviewing her for the podcast, and she said, you know, she works on those cases as well. Um, the ones that turn out to be not true. And she says it's, they very quickly start to unravel once you do an actual investigation. So it's not hard to actually find out which cases are true and which cases are not if you do an actual investigation, but some of these don't even get to that point. But what was also interesting is that, so sexual assault experts were allowed to testify at this trial because, but they could not talk about the specifics of the case. They had to talk about sexual assault behavior in general, which really is crucial for jurors to understand. And what the DA did in the second trial, they didn't do in the first, which was when there was a mistrial, is he put her first. He made Bar Dr. Ziv the first witness in the second trial to educate the jury on sexual assault behavior, which is normally you start with the police, you do this, you do that. And they, he just realized that by, I think by interviewing members of the jury for the first trial, that there was a lot they didn't understand. He took a chance and did something totally outside of the box, which, which was making her testify first. But what I later found out is that when I was writing the book, it was only after the Jerry Sandusky case in 2012 that Pennsylvania passed a law allowing sexual assault experts to be used at trial like this. And Pennsylvania was the 50th state in the country to do this. Wow. They literally the last one in the country to allow sexual assault experts to testify in these trials. That's insane. I mean, the, the education part is so important and putting them first to, to talk generally, not about specifics of the case, but generally. Right. And she talked about that, that, you know, most sexual assault, you know, victims don't go to the police, that most sexual assaults are committed by someone they know, 85 percent, that most victims do not disclose immediately. There's a delayed reporting, you know, all of these things that are, are just and it educates the media, too, because I still don't think the media, especially the national media, really understands sexual assault victim behavior. And that plays a part in this as well. And it's like, well, why did you talk to him again if he raped you? You know, things things like that that just become totally uh, portrayed a different way to readers and viewers. Yeah. And grooming, you know, is a big one when there's a, when there's a power imbalance and when there's a relationship of trust. And I think that trust is the part that a lot of people miss that he didn't go straight in as most 
perps don't go straight in and do something terrible. There's a grooming process prior and there's a trust relationship and dynamic. And that's what happened here. And we also, in terms of the rape stats, we know that so few um, of the cases actually result in an arrest and a conviction. So that's quite rare too. I mean, in the UK, when we talk about false allegations, it's actually less than 2% that are false alleges. And those cases can be screened out quite quickly, as, as you said, Nikki. But unfortunately, the starting point tends to be that women shouldn't be trusted or believed when they come forward and they, they share their stories. And oftentimes, if there's trauma, if there's a drug element, for example, then memory can be very problematic. And of course, you know, we've had the Amber Heard case where it seems everybody's now an expert in sexual victimization because so many people weighed in having watched aspects of the trial or even all of it and seem to think that they know whether someone's telling the truth or not which is really quite remarkable to me having been someone for 27 years who's worked with victims and survivors and actually incomplete memory again is another marker when there's been trauma or when there's been time and distance the memory is not perfect and so again lots of people have the wrong kind of notions about what authenticity looks like and what it doesn't look like and of course we've got another big trial here in Los Angeles that's just underway with with Weinstein where prior bad act witnesses will also give their testimony as well. So there's a lot that's stacked against victims when when they come forward. There really is. But I'm glad, you know, in the second trial that the expert was used appropriately. And of course, prosecutors should learn from what works and what doesn't when prosecuting these challenging cases. And you sat through it all, didn't you? Yeah, both trials and all the pretrial hearings. Yeah, I was just looking up because I have I had some stats in the book about it. it said um, just five to seven percent. Five point seven, I think it is. I've got that scribbled down. Yeah, five point seven percent of rapes end in an arrest. Just five of them. Only point seven percent result in a conviction, and point six percent result in incarceration. <laughs> That's what needs to be overhauled and looked at. Why is it that these cases are not getting to court? I mean, for me, I'm going to answer the question. If you've got someone like Bruce Castor, who has a very clear view without investigating, and that also is just something I can't fathom. Why, when he was so dogged with other investigations, as you described, was he so close-minded, even in 2005, about about this case? Just and shouldn't he have met Andrea Constand first, too, before he made... I mean, I know Risa was there when Bibi brought her in, but Castor has never never met her when he made that decision. I mean, if you're going to be making a big decision like that, don't you think you owe it to yourself to talk to the victim yourself and get a sense of what you think about their credibility? He didn't want to because he had already made up his mind. Yeah. And I think that's the answer to that question, isn't it? That if you have a have your mind already made up and you're taking a form of action, then you don't want that to be changed or questioned or challenged in any way, and without interviewing 14 victims. It just flies in the face, and it says there's some so much more going on behind the scenes, and maybe one day we will know. I know his father was a powerful lawyer, wasn't he, and friends with Bill Cosby's father. Wasn't there some kind of connection in the background? Yeah, I, I did a story about that back in 2005. It was very interesting because I found out that Castor's attorney, father, who's also an attorney, had represented the seller when Cosby bought that mansion in Elkins Park where he assaulted Andrea. 
And it's something that Castor should have disclosed to Andrew. It's, you know, you just disclose it. It's not, there's nothing wrong with it, but you're supposed to disclose it. And he didn't disclose it to Andrew's attorneys, but he did disclose it to Cosby's attorney. And it, well, because I interviewed his attorney, he's like, oh yeah, Castor told me about that. Yeah, oh yeah. And then didn't tell Andrew's attorneys. So was there a deeper relationship? I mean, Castor's family is very wealthy and powerful, and I'm sure they all ran in the same circles with Cosby in Philly. You know, maybe that's really, they did know each other. There's some other information I have that I'm still trying to figure out what to do with. Um, that I've developed uh, about the whole Castor Cosby connection. So um, we'll see what happens. So you're still investigating. This is still ongoing. I have. Yeah. I mean, I'm really, I, I would not, I don't intend to stop. I, I don't know quite what to do with it. I mean, we still have some projects we're trying to do, which I've completely lost hope about, but because Hollywood, again, still seems very reluctant to tackle this subject, especially in the light of the BLM movement and everything, there's just a, definitely a sensitivity toward portraying Black people in a negative light, even if they are serial rapists. Yes, there was the Showtime docuseries, but it was a Black director who did it. And, you know, I think what helped get that through, too, is that his producer at CNN went to Showtime and that kind of paved the way for him to get that project going. But half the docuseries was about what a wonderful guy Cosby was. It was just juxtaposed with these allegations against him. You know, and it was very well done. Don't get me wrong. It was very powerful. He was very respectful to the women. But again, you know, there was still a lot of time spent on what a great person Cosby had been. And I get that. I am not criticized. I'm just saying that that it was just normally you see with true crime, you know, what there's such a true crime craze, you know, that you see these projects all over the place. And there's just not that many. Mine is the only book out there now until Andrea wrote hers, you know, it came out last year. Normally there'd be a lot of books on this case and there's mine's mine is the only one. And, you know, honestly, it was an uphill battle. I got one offer. Did you want to say anything more about future projects and why it's important or? No, I mean, I'm working on a couple of book projects and so forth. So these things take a while. I'm still following this and I still will be looking into some more investigative things and I just can't really talk about any of the book things right yet. So, <laughs> Yeah, I get it. Well, let me know if I can help in any way. This case still weighs heavy on my mind, actually. just It just it feels like the injustice of it all when so many brave women came forward and there just seems to be this sort of sleight of hand that's gone on behind the scenes. And I guess that's what aggrieves me so much, that a sleight of hand has happened and it's trying to un- understand and unravel it because there are answers there, but I just hope that you or we get to them one day, because it's just not, it's just unconscionable what's happened. I know. And, you know, the reason I I want there to be some TV projects about this too, is so people truly understand. I think the podcast really reached a lot of people that the book didn't, you know, if you watch the docuseries that was on Showtime, it was very well done, but the criminal case is barely mentioned. It's barely mentioned. Andrea didn't cooperate in it. She didn't um, go in it, but the criminal case is barely mentioned. So I still think there's um, a lot the general public doesn't understand about this case that they would might understand better. Um, Hopefully they'll listen to the podcast because that I really feel like the podcast, you know, opened a lot of eyes, but TV has a power. It's such a powerful medium, but I, I think sadly it'll probably take till he passes away before there will be anything that's done, scripted or otherwise. I mean, it's yeah. just, this is just a case that Hollywood just does not want to touch. 
for whatever yeah. reason. And it is what it is. And I'm really just happy. All I ever wanted was the book. <laughs> I really didn't ever dream I'd get a podcast, but it's more about just trying to change people's perceptions of this case and, and educating people about it. And TV just reaches people that books and podcasts don't. Yes. Although your podcast is excellent and I would highly recommend read the book, listen to the podcast, you know, even the imagery of the sweater, the jumper with the unraveling of the thread. It's so powerful as an image because that's really what this case is all about, isn't it? Of, of pulling the thread and, and there's so much to it. There's so many layers. It's just unbelievable. Right. And the, no, I, I love the podcast. I just think the audience it reaches probably skews younger. And a lot of the Cosby fans, a lot of that, because I, I mean, even some of the Cosby women, they didn't even know how to listen to a podcast when I was sending it to them. They're like, well, how do I do this? Like, what do I not? So I think like the older generations, I love them and I get a huge kick out of them. And I think they reach an audience that other mediums don't. And, you know, that's why it won awards and it got millions of downloads and all of that. I just think that, you know, TV might reach more of his fans and so forth is, but it is what it is. You know, what will happen will happen. And he's been canceled. So it's one of the good parts of the cancel culture, at least. <laughs> yeah. We don't want to hear from him. And, you know, to my listeners, follow the facts and follow the evidence. And I, and I think that's what you've presented incredibly well in, in the book um, and the podcast as well. When you hear the women talk, it's just so powerful. You know, when you hear them in person, even more powerful. You could hear a pin drop at the skirball. Here's the trailer for the Chasing Cosby podcast. Take a listen to this. I survived being drugged and sexually assaulted by Bill Cosby. Drugged and sexually assaulted. Drugged and sexually assaulted. Sexually assaulted. Assaulted by Bill Cosby. At that time in 65, I was 17. Why did you do this to me, Mr. Cosby? For nearly half a century, Bill Cosby led a dark, secret life preying on women. During this mentoring process in preparation for my guest starring role on The Cosby Show, he groomed me and he drugged and raped me. He slowly and carefully coaxed each one into feeling safe and cared for, and then left them to pick up the pieces of their lives. It all started with Andrea Constand. She carried the burden of being the only one of the 60-plus victims whose case could be tried in a court of law. It was not going to be easy to come forward and to say the truth about what happened to me. But I was really fighting for many others as well. I consider Andre Constant to be the Joan of Arc in the war on rape. This is part of the age of empowerment of women. It's what we call the reckoning. Bill Cosby, three words for you. Guilty, guilty, guilty! My name is Nikki Wisensee Egan. I've been the lead investigative reporter on the Cosby case since the first day it broke in 2005. Cosby is now behind bars and still maintains his innocence. In this new six-part podcast, the jurors, the attorneys, the families, and the survivors are finally getting their chance to speak out as one. My name is Tamara Green. My name is Shalon Lasha. Stacey Pinkerton. Therese Serenese. Sunny Wells. Lisa Lott Lublin. PJ Mastin. Beth Ferrier. Jennifer Kaya Thompson. And in her own words, Andrea Constand is telling her side of the story. At a certain point, I realized that this was going to either take me down or it was going to take my perpetrator down. This is Chasing Cosby.
for Andrea, it's been so tough for her giving evidence at not just one trial, but two. And then there's the civil suits as well. And I would imagine there's a part of her that does want to just live her life now, that she doesn't want it to define her. But unfortunately, it has just been in the in the zeitgeist so much, hasn't it? And the smear campaign against her and her family is just has been so destructive. So I, I do hope she's healing. Um, and I know she's trying to help other other survivors as well. They're, they're all incredible women, but Andrea does stand out, doesn't she, uh, in terms of what she's had to endure and just been such a strong force. And I do hope that she and her family are are healing from it all. Yes, I will say Bill Cosby definitely underestimated Andrea Constand um, way back in when he did all of this, I don't think he ever thought she had it in her to stand up to him. Boy, did she prove him wrong. You know, she has her own book that came out and I, she's got some other projects she's working on. She's got the foundation. She started to help other sexual assault victims. I think at a certain point she realized that she was never going to be able to escape this. So she had to figure out a way to live with that and do something that would help other people as well. And she needed to have her side of it out and she did it. It's a great book. And I'm, I'm happy that, you know, she didn't let that NDA stop her because he violated it over and over. And that's really what allowed her to be able to finally speak in the podcast and do the interview she's done and write her book is because he had already violated it so many times. It basically didn't exist anymore. Yeah, she's shown huge mental fortitude and um, incredibly courageous and helping so many others. It's now her superpower. And if you can turn the, these experiences, such negative experiences into positive, and you can use that anger into a into a positive, it, it does become like a superpower. So all, all power to all the incredible women who've spoken out and, and to you, Nikki. And I'm sure we'll be talking again on, on Crime Analyst in the future. So I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. And um, thank you for, for sharing so much and for your incredible book and, and podcast, Chasing Cosby. Thank you. Thanks for having me on, Laura. Okay, I'm jumping back in here to wrap this episode. I'm very aware that that's a lot of information to take in and process. A lot has happened over the years, and it's fascinating to me that Cosby is still banging the drum that he's innocent. That is not what the jury determined in the criminal or the civil case. So go read Nikki's book, Chasing Cosby, and listen to the podcast of the same name. I'm going to end thinking about all the incredible survivors who came forward. I hope you're all healing and find peace. Until next time, be curious, ask questions and always trust your instincts. Here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to Crime Analyst or on the website www.crime-analyst.com. It really helps others find me and also helps with the ratings. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Robottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrude.